you everyone for uh, singing, certainly an appropriate song for the subject we've been studying in the book of Hebrews, but uh, before we uh, read the passage for today, <clears throat> I wanted to think a little bit about the subject of perfection or being perfect. Are you perfect? In what ways does perfection count? I uh, spoke with somebody today who said uh, an A-plus is not good enough for them. <laughs> not going to say who that is, but uh, they want to be perfect. They need to get every question right. Uh, recently, we've had the Olympics, and uh, there was a gymnast that uh, won the all-around uh, gold and uh, certainly performed. Uh, to a very high standard. Interestingly, she didn't get uh, perfect in the sense that uh, we would measure perfection. She still had some deductions, but she excelled over all the others, and so she got the gold medal. And by that account, we might consider her to have been perfect. Um, another thing in which we sometimes seek for perfection, uh, I went to... Uh, a jewelry store when I was uh, preparing to propose to my wife, and uh, they say that a diamond is a girl's best friend, and so I had to buy her a diamond engagement ring, and that's where I learned that diamonds also have their levels of perfection. If you go to the next slide, uh, the, uh, uh, <coughs> the salesman showed me a uh, the diamond under a microscope and explained why it's a high-quality diamond. I don't think you'd be able to see anything from where you're sitting, but there's different ratings of how perfect a diamond is based on these inclusions inside of the crystal that when you look under a microscope, you can see. <laughs> so even diamonds have the levels of perfection. But today we want to think about what is it that God considers to be Perfect. What is it that God considers to be perfect? We have a, a hint of that in uh, Genesis 1, 26. He says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That's what God said when he created man. So God had a certain goal for people when he made them. He wanted them to be like him. He gave us the capacity to be like him by making us according to to his image. In Romans 3.23, it says, uh, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there we see the standard by which God measures our perfection. It is by his standard. He wants us to be perfect like he is perfect. Right? That is God's standard of perfection. And as we think about that, we want to consider how can we achieve that perfection. If I would ask uh, an A student, how is it that you get an A? What is it that you have to do? They will explain that they have to study hard. They have to look at their books and prepare. If you were to ask a gymnast, how did they reach that level of performance? They would say they had to work hard at it to reach that level. If I asked a person at the diamond store, how did you find a diamond? So perfect, they would explain. They had to look through many, many crystals to identify one with that level of perfection. 
How is it that we become perfect in God's eyes? That's the question we want to answer today. Now, before we read the usual passage, I wanted to give an opportunity for anyone who wanted to recite Hebrews uh, 12, 1 and 2. Those are key verses. Now, to give some credit uh, to you guys, I did receive a call from one of the saints. Uh, Joanna called me and told me she was preparing, but she uh, is under the weather today, so she couldn't make it to church, but she wanted me to know that she was preparing, and she would say that the next given opportunity. So, Joanna has an excuse. Anybody else <laughs> wanting to recite Hebrews 10, 1 and 2, 12, 1 and 2? Okay. So as usual, my punishment for you is we'll all say it together. Rather, you guys will say it together. I've said it enough times. Uh, so let's go ahead and, and read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Very good. And uh, again, today we'll be looking unto Jesus, right? That's really the key words we have uh, for the book of Hebrews. We'll start in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Lord willing, we'll make it to verse 18 today and finish a section of the book of Hebrews. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So if you remember, for the last few uh, studies in the book of Hebrews, we were seeing this comparison between the Levitical priesthood, or the first covenant, the way in which Israel was supposed to approach God, and Christ, the mediator of the new covenant through which we approach Christ. And that's what he means here when he says the law having a shadow of a good things to come. He's talking about the Le Levitical priesthood being a shadow of the good things to come. The good things to come speaks about being made perfect. Being made perfect, that's what we want to be. Um, what does it mean to, to have a shadow? I have a, an illustration as a picture here. And uh, the way a shadow works is you have a bright source of light, usually the sun or some, some bright light, and you're standing in the path of that light like the man uh, in the picture holding an umbrella, and then he's blocking some area of the light, and that cast out his shadow behind him. Now, let's say it was a rainy day, like some of the ones we've had recently, and I wanted to stay dry in the rain. Can I come and stand under the shadow of this umbrella? Will that protect me from the rain? No, it will not. It's just a shadow. And in the same way, the first covenant was a shadow of Christ. Christ is the one who really makes us perfect with God, 
but he was casting a shadow, and that shadow was portrayed with these offerings of the animals. Those were all shadows of Christ. And as a result, they just pictured what God was going to do one day to make us perfect, but in themselves they could not make us perfect. Right? Just like this shadow umbrella cannot protect me from the rain. That's what he's saying. Now he goes ahead and makes an argument for that. He says, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. The point he's making there is if God expected and planned and provided that these offerings of the Levitical priesthood will really make men perfect, he wouldn't need those sacrifices to continue to be offered. And yet in the law we find that God projected and told Israel, every year you must do it. In fact, every month and every week and every day, offerings had to be made to God. Why did God have this commandment for these sacrifices to continue? Because he knew they in themselves could not make people perfect. But it says in these sacrifices there was a reminder of sins every year. God just wanted to make it very clear to Israel that they needed to be saved. They had a sin problem. Right? That was the purpose for the continue, continuing of these sacrifices. And then finally he says it very clear here. For it is <coughs> not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. In order for God to remove my sins for me, they have to be paid for. And they are paid by death. But the death of an animal cannot pay for the sins of a man. We are not equal, animals and people. You can't kill an animal and, and think that the death of the animal is, has the same value as your death. And therefore, it cannot take away your sins. Right? That's ultimately the crux of the problem in the Levitical priesthood. They were offering animal sacrifices. We could not, could not take away sin. We'll continue in verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, and this is speaking of Christ, so now the author will go ahead and pull out a prophecy from the Old Testament for the Hebrews, the audience of his letter to see, that will speak of the Messiah. And remember, this is the word of God to them. They did not have the New Testament so the author was going to the word of God to prove his point or to show that Christ really was that person who could make them perfect with God. Okay? So it's an amazing prophecy. He's going about a thousand, about a thousand years backward. This is a psalm, Psalm 40 in, the, in your Bible, written by David a thousand years before Christ. The author will pull it out and, so, and say, look, even then God was speaking about what he was going to accomplish in Christ. One of the unique things Christianity has, which no other religion has, is the Old Testament, these prophecies God made hundreds and even thousands of years in advance what Christ was going to accomplish. And we know these were written before because we have copies existing before the time of Christ. So we know this is legitimate prophecy, a miracle, divine way of revealing to us that the Bible is true and that Christ and his offering is true. Therefore, when he, Christ, came into the world, he said, quoting for Psalm, from Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me 
to do your will, O God, end quote. Right? And now he will interpret for us what it means. And he says, previously saying, meaning the first part of this prophecy, he said, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Amazing. Even though God commanded in the law that his offerings be offered, now we have in David, David perhaps a few hundred years after the law was written, God is saying clearly, I'm not interested in those sacrifices. Right? To show that these were not really the way God was going to make Israel right with him. They were just a picture. Right? Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. He removes the sacrifices of the Old Testament to bring in the perfect sacrifice. Right? Now it says there, a body you have prepared for me. This is speaking of the incarnation. This is God, the Son, speaking from heaven, saying, you have prepared for me a body. God had prepared a human body for Jesus. And we can add a human nature. He was fully man. Right? And remember why? We said before, you cannot use the death of an animal to pay for the sins of a man. Only the death of a man pays for the sins of a man. And so the Lord Jesus, to be that perfect sacrifice, had to become a man. As a man, he had to die for my sins. And then he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And we were worshiping God this morning for the fact that Jesus came to do the Father's will. It speaks of Jesus' perfection, that he wanted to honor the Father. He loved the Father. He wanted to do the things that please the Father. In fact, in, the, in Psalm 40, it says that I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is within my heart, picturing the perfect conformance of Christ to God the Father, which speaks of his sinlessness, which again is required if Jesus is to die in my place for my sins, he must be perfect in himself. Right? And we see that perfection in how he offered himself willingly to God on the cross. It was a picture of Christ. But ultimately, when it says here, I have come to do your will, O God, it speaks of the fact that God the Father wanted the Lord Jesus to go to the cross. And we, we uh, quoted many verses in that regard. Let me just add one more that so we did in the worship hour. But uh, he, we also have it for us in John 10, 17 and 18. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life, speaking of the cross, that I may take it again, speaking of the resurrection. No one takes it from me. No power on earth could have held Jesus down to that cross and put the nails in his hand, right? No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So Jesus, at the command of his Father, went to the cross for you and for me and became that perfect sacrifice. And continuing in verse 11, 
And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We have an image here in the Jewish law of the priest continuously offering sacrifices which cannot take away sin. It reminds me of something that happened to me about a year ago. I was uh, playing with, uh, with my kids at, the, uh, at our playroom and I took off my shoes and I noticed that I had uh, a bump at the bottom of my feet and I just kind of ignored that. But then after some days, uh, I noticed it was bothering me as I was walking, so I decided I should go to the doctor. And uh, doctors looks at it and uh, explains to me that that is called a corn. And I was, wait again, wait a, wait a second, isn't that a problem all people are supposed to have? <laughs> and uh, the doctor affirmed it is a problem that comes with age. And uh, I've, I've graduated to that level. And uh, what happens, as my doctor explains to me, is uh, my you know, foot, when it's young, it's kind of nice and fleshy. And as I get old, that flesh kind of goes away. I have less of that, I don't know, fatty tissue or whatever it is that kind of helps that foot being nice and bouncy. And uh, as a result, my bones in my foot are putting a pressure on my skin and my skin responds by creating something like a callus, basically some sort of a hard material that maybe is designed in some way to protect the bones. But as a result, I was feeling pain every time I was stepping on it, which I didn't find to be um, a good deal. But the doctor assured me there is something I can do. I can shave it off. So he literally took a razor blade and kind of shaved off the corn, which didn't hurt. And as a result, when I stepped on my foot, it, did no, it didn't hurt anymore, right? It felt good. The doctor explained to me, too, that the corn will grow again. And uh, I'm welcome to come back and receive his services again when such a time comes. And in a sense, that's the picture we have here in the Levitical priesthood. The doctor could not take away my corn. He could just kind of make it more endurable, Right? And it had to be these repetitive services that he would give me. In the same way, the, the uh, Levitical priesthood could not take away the sin problem. It couldn't make me perfect. It could make me feel a little bit better about my sin. Every time I sin, I can come, and they can offer the sacrifice, and they can assure me I'm now right with God, and I can go home. But you know what? I'll go home, and you know, after a few days, or maybe more, maybe less, I will once again sin, and I have to go back to them, and once again they have to do the offering. And that shows the problem. They couldn't really solve the problem, just like my doctor couldn't really solve my problem. But it said, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. He was done with his work, right? Which shows that his work was effective. If the doctor said, I, I removed your corn, you will never have to come here again. My job is done. 
right? You know, that would be the equivalent. It's just that my doctor couldn't do that. But Jesus said, I have taken away your sin forever. You are good. Don't have to worry about it. And that's why he continues on saying, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And now I want to stop and think about that a little bit. Actually, let me go ahead and add one thought that I thought would be significant. Maybe it's not uh, an issue we struggle with here, but uh, sometimes I feel like I keep beating on these old subjects, right? We don't have the Levitical priesthood. We don't have to, you know, why is this applicable for us? Well, I would say this. Although we don't have the Levitical priesthood, we have a lot of programs for what we call self-improvement, right? People have a natural sense of inadequacy, which is right, because we are not what God created us to be. God created us to be perfect. If you want to, you can show the picture. This is the time. <laughs> right, you see these signs. And so we have all these programs being offered to us to try to make us feel better about ourselves. Right? Because I don't feel adequate. I don't feel I've arrived. I don't think I'm the way I ought to be. We have these different programs being offered. Now, what's wrong with these programs? Well, what's wrong with them is that they don't work. Right? None of them can really make us perfect. How do you know that? Because every year they come up with new ones. Right? I mean, if they would stumble across one that really made people perfect, they would stop. That's it. This proven to work. We'll just keep giving the same one, and you take it once, and you're done. But the same people, again and again, take different programs that are being offered every year. Why? Because they sense the need. They sense their inadequacy. And yet, the only one who offered an eternal solution is Christ. How do we know that 2,000 years ago, he died on the cross? And Christianity hasn't come up with anything new. Right? We still look back to the cross 2,000 years ago, and we're saying that is what we are trusting in today to make us right with God, to make us perfect. Nothing new. Let me deal with what I think is, is one of the difficult issues that this presents to us, and that is we don't, even as believers, we don't feel perfect. And I want to note, it very clearly speaks here in the past tense. It says, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The Bible is very clear that we are perfect. God has perfected us. And that's, in fact, why the Bible uses the word saints, referring to believers. Saints literally means holy ones. I can call you holy because the Bible says you are holy. And the reason for that, in God's mind, the job is done. Because he is completely outside of time. And he has, in his position outside of time, applied to you the value of the death of Christ. And that completely cleansed your sins away. And he imparted the righteousness of Christ to you. And you stand before God perfect. Our problem is we're stuck in time. And in the present time, I, I haven't come into all the good of what God has done. Let me try to, to pass this thought into sections. First of all, the problem of time. Uh, let's say you went back in time and you saw this. 
I get the next slide out. Anybody knows who that man is? That Hitler. What time is that? Right, World War II. Right? In World War II, the world was in war. And uh, we didn't know who was going to win. And for a long time, people would probably have their bets on this man. He was winning victory after victory. Every power in Europe fell down before him. And at that time, Europe was kind of the superpower of the world. The U.S. was just coming into its own. At the end of the war, it will be the other way around. People would recognize the U.S. as a superpower, but not before the war. So it seemed this man was invincible. And if you lived at that time, right, you would be very concerned about what was going to happen. In fact, I understand there's like a TV show about what if right, Germany and Japan would have won, as a, at the time thought as a possible scenario, what the world would be like. And you would be full of fear. Now, let's say you went back in time. Somehow, you, you came up with one of these time machines, and you went back, and there you are in the middle of World War II again. Would you be feel, full of fear that Germany might win in Japan? No, because you know the future, right? And in the same way, we today are are in this life uh, struggling with sin. We'll talk about that. And, uh, you know, we might wonder, am I going to be perfect? Is this really going to happen? Right? Well, God from outside of time tells you it is. You are perfect in Christ. Outside of time, if you were to somehow, you know, come back from heaven, and for sure you won't, but you made it all the way to heaven, you're in your perfection, and somehow a time machine zaps you back into earth, into this time when you're struggling with sin, you know, you'd be, you know, I know the future. I am perfect before God, right? And I will be with heaven, and I'll enjoy my perfection, God's perfection for all of eternity. But at this time, you're struggling. In the same way, if you were zapped back to the time of World War II, you would be struggling with World War II. It's a bad time, but you'd have no uncertainty about the outcome of the war. I feel I, I, I stepped a little bit ahead of myself. Uh, why, why is it that I say that we're, we're struggling with uh, imperfection? Because we know it's true on our, on our, in our personal experience, but the scripture says the same. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That was the Apostle Paul speaking, right? I mean, he struggled with sin. And sin bothered him in his personal life. And he applies it generally in Romans 8.23. He said, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, believers, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, who have the first fruits and evidence of salvation in their life, even we groan ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our bodies. We groan, why? Because there is sin in our life, right? And, and we don't like sin in our life, 
And one of the reasons we don't like sin in our life is because God changed the way we are. Before I was saved, I didn't mind having sin in my life. Right? It's one of the evidence, one of the fruits of the Spirit. Now I'm convicted and I feel bad every time I commit sin. And yet, as, as, the, uh, as, as you could have confidence if you went back to World War II that you will win the battle, so we can have confidence that God will win the battle in our lives. He will bring us through this time. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If I was to show you my art piece as I was working with clay on the upper left, you may not be very impressed with me. But if I would show you the complete form on the bottom right, you'd say, oh, well, that's, that's beautiful, what you did. And so right now, God has begun a good work in our lives. And that beginning may look a little bit what that thing in the upper left. It's beginning to take shape. You can see that the worker is doing something. God has changed my life. If you would have known me before I was saved, you would say, God has changed your life. I have one of my unsaved friends from college said, of all the people I've known in college, you changed the most. Right? Why? It was because God was at work in my life. And yet, if you were to know me very well, you'd say, no, I'd still a lot of rough corners over there. <laughs> you know? I don't quite see that beauty of Christ in you. Because God is not done, you see. But he who has begun a good work in me will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. When will that day come? First Corinthians 15. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, this stuff, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. You know what that means? This is not good enough for heaven. Right? We're talking about my flesh here. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning die, but we shall all be changed. This body will not last. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the last trumpet, that is when the Lord Jesus is coming back, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? And that really speaks about our victory over death, right, given to us through Christ. C.S. Lewis had a way with words, and he said, if you were to see me one second after I died, you would have a strong urge to worship me. Now, you don't 
worship me. You should never worship me. Only worship God. But with our glorified bodies, right, we will be so much greater than we are now that a person could feel, wow. Right? But that's a change that God has yet to make. And that is why, brothers and sisters, saints, holy ones, you might not feel holy right now because that change has not yet happened. But the Bible says that by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So the work is done. Right? We don't want to doubt what God has done and accomplished in us, even as we may be struggling with sin right now. It's okay. Not that we shouldn't seek victory. We should seek victory over sin, but it should not question what Christ has accomplished for us. Finally, we have Hebrews 10, 15 through 18, finishing the passage for today. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Here the author, I think, sensing again the, the danger of unbelief in his audience. This is too good to be true. What do you mean by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified? <laughs> That's a little bit much to swallow. He said, okay, let me prove the point, right? And he goes back, again in the Old Testament, remember this is the word of God that they have, and he said, I will show you on the authority of the word of God that this is so, right? And this is really where we want our confidence to be in the authority of the word of God, not in our feelings. And he goes to Jeremiah, and I forget which chapter it is in Jeremiah, so you'll have to Google it later. But uh, in Jeremiah, it says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. And this is speaking again of the new covenant, right? We, actually, the same verses are quoted for us in chapter 8. Uh, he says, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Speak of how God is going to change us from the inside out. But then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. How is that helps us? Well, if we're getting to the point where God is not remembering sin anymore, will there still be sacrifices and offerings for sins? No, incompatible. So it means the sacrifices must end, which means what? The offering of Christ must be good forever. Right? Otherwise, God wouldn't say, I'm not going to be thinking or remembering sin anymore. He had to put sin away once and for all in order for that to be fulfilled. Right? So again, he, he proves it by the authority of the word of God that Christ's death for us, his single death, satisfies God's requirement for sin forever. No more is needed. That's the point. Okay. Let's uh, talk about the application. First of all, remember I started with the question, how, how do we attain perfection? How do you get perfect scores on your exams? You have to work for them. How do you achieve 
that perfect gymnastic routine, you have to work for it. How do you find that perfect diamond? You have to keep looking. How do you become perfect in God's eyes? Christ did the work. Right? It was his work, not ours. I was... Uh, looking for a picture. Sometimes I find a picture of my kids that, that's just perfect. This time I, I didn't quite find the picture with my kids that was that quite perfect, so I cheated. I think I must be a mouse because I just got cut by a mouse trap. I'll put it back down here. Gotta watch where you put your foot. All right, I think I'm gonna leave it here for now. We'll catch the next preacher. How do you relax in a hammock? I don't know if you've ever tried to sit in a hammock. I remember trying sometimes, and you know, the hammock would dump me, and uh, you know, we'd feel uncomfortable. To trust in a hammock, to, to, to really be able to rest in a hammock, you just have to kind of trust it. Right? You have to stop moving. Just put yourself on it, right? Like that girl is doing. And uh, the same is true for us to enjoy God's provision for us in Christ. Right? I uh, know for myself, you know, as I struggle with sin in my life, there's a sense of inadequacy, right? And thinking, well, I need to do something to try to make myself perfect with God. Right? I need to work harder. I need to... Uh, make up for the wrong things that I have done. And uh, yet that's not true. Christ made me perfect. Right? That doesn't change with what I do. And for me to enjoy Christ, I just have to trust him. Right? I have to accept what he did for me. Just like a person resting in a hammock has to trust that hammock to hold him. Right? There's no other way. Now it doesn't mean I don't do anything to please God. But I do it out of appreciation for what he has done for me. Right? Nothing else actually counts in the eyes of God. That's why he speaks of the Jews uh, in Isaiah as uh, saying, all your righteous deeds are as filthy rags in my sight. Because they were done to try to earn favor with God. As opposed to out of love for God. The only, only works God has, finds any value with are works done out of love. And the only time we serve God out of love is when we accept what he has done for us. Right? Not trying to earn it ourselves. Finally, if you have not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior, let me invite you to accept what Christ has done for you and uh, to experience the changes in your life that Christ alone can bring and, uh, and, and let that be the evidence for you, for you of what it is that, that Christ has done for you. Test him out. Try him. Come to him. Say, Lord Jesus, I put my faith in you. I want you to save me from my sins. And then see what Christ will do for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the completeness of your work on our behalf on the cross. And uh, 
we, uh, we ask us, you to uh, give us victory in our daily lives as we do struggle with sin, but help us trust in you completely and enjoy the wonderful uh, salvation and rest and peace that you alone can bring into our hearts. We pray for anybody here who might not know you, Lord, that you will touch their hearts, draw them to yourself, help them put their trust in Christ and experience your salvation. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.